Well, I'm excited. It's going to have a great study, I pray, in the word of the Lord tonight. So take your Bible and open up to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, a portion of scripture that many consider to be perhaps the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Again, this is going to be a wonderful study in this chapter. I mean, this chapter is filled with so much great truth, so much wonderful truth, that I think no matter how long and diligently we worked our way through the text, I don't think we could ever uncover uh, all the great rich truths that this text contains. And as we work our way through chapter 8, it's going to be a study that puts a focus upon uh, the person, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in the life of the believer. The one who enables us to live the Christian life. The Holy Spirit's mentioned 19 times in the first 27 verses of Romans 8. Verse 2 says the Holy Spirit is described there as the spirit of life. Verse 4 says we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 5 says our minds are to be set on the things of the spirit. Verse 9 says the spirit of God is the spirit, is the spirit of Christ, and both the Father and the Son have sent the spirit. Verse 11, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And in those uh, who are regenerate, those of us who are born again, His Spirit indwells us. Verse 13 says, by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body. May He is the one who helps us resist temptation and to put sin to death uh, in our bodies, to mortify sin. Verse 14 says, we are being led by the Spirit of God in our pursuit of holiness. Verse 15 and 16, it's the Holy Spirit who testifies to our spirit that we are indeed children of God. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us assurance of our salvation that testifies again to our spirit that we are indeed the sons of God, the children of God, and not false converts, ones who are self-deceived like those in Matthew 7 to whom say, to whom they say, Lord, Lord, but then those who the Lord will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Verse 23 says, having the first fruits of the Spirit... Again, it's evidence of our adoption into the family of God. Verse 26, it is the Spirit who helps our weakness. The Holy Spirit helps our weakness. He prays, uh, helps us to pray even uh, in those areas where we are weak. And we don't even know that we're weak. We don't know how to pray. It's the the person of the Holy Spirit who comes and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, the Holy Spirit searches the heart. Uh, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this chapter focuses heavily upon the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And he is not just some impersonal uh, uh, power or force, uh, not just some kind of influence that emanates from uh, the presence of God, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the third member of the Godhead, the person, uh, a person who possesses complete entity and personality of his own, just like God the Father and God the Son. So the chapter is going to focus heavily upon the person of the Holy Spirit and his impact in our lives as believers. And again, the only way that we can live the life that God has called us to live in time as believers is not through our own strength, not through our own power, but through the power of the Spirit whom he has put within us in order to produce the life of Christ in us. Now the chapter begins 
uh, verse 1, with no condemnation. Verse 1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the chapter ends with no separation. Verse 39, there's nothing that can separate us, the text says, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So from no condemnation to no separation with the Holy Spirit again working in and through our lives. Now before we get going, I I need to uh, address a textual variant. If you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, uh, your text does not stop after the phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but your version adds either, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, uh, the King James Version, or the New King James says, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That, that phrase is omitted in what many consider to be the best ancient New Testament manuscripts. The phrase is found in verse 4, so it's believed by most commentators that it's wrongly placed here in those two texts, and it's probably best to omit that phrase uh, at this particular point here in verse 1. In fact, if you retain that errant clause, it seems to suggest exactly the opposite of what the text is, uh, the text is actually saying. Now, the corrupted version, if you will, reads like this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So that version seems to be teaching that if we continue to lead a quote-unquote godly life in the Spirit, then we'll not be condemned. Uh, but if we fail to lead a godly life, then we will be. So it's, a, it's an error there in the text. So how did that error occur? Uh, we don't know. I mean, again, I've told you before that uh, uh, before the invention of the printing press, all manuscripts were hand-copied. So from time to time, they were copying errors. Uh, however, the most and the vast majority of the cases, the copyists were accurate. Uh, and we spoke to these kind of issues when we were dealing uh, with uh, the end of John chapter 7 and the first part of John chapter 8. There's a handful of these variants, textual problems, uh, amongst the vast majority of New Testament texts that are out there. And obviously those who work with the New Testament texts are well aware of these problems. Some scholars have come and suggested that perhaps uh, scribes were motivated to add this kind of qualifier here in this top of the chapter 1, interpolated or again introduced from verse 4 in an attempt to try to insulate Paul's gospel from the charge that would characterize by too much grace, right? Isn't that the charge against when you preach the gospel of grace, you're preaching too much grace, right? Which doesn't make any sense, but that's what people do, right? So I don't know, that's a a possibility. So it's a textual variant that shouldn't be in there. And just as a bit of Bible trivia, I thought you'd find this interesting. Uh, I said that before the invention of the printing press, uh, all manuscripts were hand-copied, and from time to time, uh, there were errors that worked their way into the text. But the truth is, after the invention of the printing press, uh, the same thing kind of things happened. Uh, there's a version, of, a version of the Bible printed in the 1795 King James Version that is referred to as, listen, the murderer's Bible. The murderer's Bible. Because it contains a typo in Mark 7, verse 27. And that typo says, let the children be killed Versus, let the children be filled. All right? <laughs> the murderer's Bible. There's also another Bible that is known as the Wicked Bible. The Wicked Bible, an authorized you know, King James Version also. Published in 1631 in London. And unfortunately, it left out a very key word. And the word was not, N-O-T, from Exodus 20, verse 14. And it wasn't discovered, the error wasn't discovered till a full year after its publication. So therefore, in this Bible, in this version, Exodus twenty fourteen, it reads, Thou shalt commit adultery. 
Now, most of those Bibles were gathered up once they found this error and they were burned. There's, I understand there's about 11 of them left uh, that, uh, you know, Bible collectors want to get their hands on. So, again, these kind of things happen from uh, either copying errors or uh, errors in setting the print or the type. Uh, sometimes uh, differences, textual differences happen by overzealous uh, scribes adding to or subtracting and making editorial comments. It's interesting, in the case of the Wicked Bible, there's actually another error that is really blasphemous in that edition and has caused some uh, historians to believe that that printing was intentionally sabotaged. As I remember the story, you had to have a license to print Bibles. And there's a great amount of evidence to suggest that one printer was trying to do his uh, competition in and somehow he sent somebody in to sabotage the text. And again, uh, the, um, uh, the one, you know, thou shalt commit adultery is the least of the problems with that Bible. I, I won't read to you what it says, but it really is a blasphemous uh, statement. So it suggests that there's a little bit of a hanky-panky going on by, behind the scenes historically, right? So from time to time, these things happen. We understand that, but it really doesn't affect for us the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible. The text really should read in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now tonight, all I want to do is this. I, I just want to introduce the chapter to us. And I want us to understand the context that chapter 8, verse 1 and chapter 8 fits. And then I want us to see how the apostle works through the major theme throughout that uh, chapter by way of overview. And then just very briefly, we'll, we'll look. We'll just start to dive into verse 1 and just uh, um, a little bit of a look at that verse. So we'll establish the context, look at an overview of the chapter, and then just start into verse 1. All right, here's the context. Verse 1 starts out with the word, therefore. Therefore. So the question that immediately arises in your mind is, what is it therefore? Right? What's the connection between chapter 8, verse 1, and what has been previously said? Does the word, therefore... Uh, take us back to what has just been previously said in chapter 7, or does it take us back even further? Therefore, there is now count, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So again, why does the apostle say that? Now, you'll remember, and I hope you will remember this, because I said it many times during our studies of chapter 6 and 7. Six and seven chapter 6 and 7 in Romans are really parenthetical thoughts. Uh, in essence, they're not really part of the great theme or the great argument of the uh, the book of Romans. They could have been left out without depriving us of the message of the book. But they were introduced because Paul's trying to address specific issues and specific objections uh, that people may have made against what he's saying. So he interjects those two chapters for the purpose of clarity concerning his teaching. So let me work backwards and briefly remind you just the major themes of uh, first chapter 7, then uh, chapter 6. You remember chapter 7 was the declaration of the fact that we're united. We are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are married to Christ. Remember there was that, that, uh, that picture of marriage. We're married to Christ, if you will. And because of that, we've been delivered uh, from the jurisdiction of the law. The Christian has died to the law through the body of Christ. The Christian has been joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So, so the Christian is dead to the law, free from the penalty, free from the condemnation of the law, but alive to God in Christ. Then you remember that Paul had to go and make some clarification because people thought he uh, didn't respect the law. So he had to vindicate the law. He says, no, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. It has a, a purpose. And so he shows that purpose. He shows the use of the law. And then he shows the limitation. And then he showed us uh, at the end of that great uh, truth about the power of indwelling sin. That indwelling sin is so great within us that every time 
that a man tries to do the right thing in his own strength, he's beaten back. Every time he tries to do the right thing, he does exactly the opposite of what he wants to do. He does the very thing that he hates. And again, he's making the argument that's the power of indwelling sin. Going back another chapter in chapter 6, the apostle was addressing the issue of sin and free grace. How does the doctrine of justification by faith alone work? Does it give license for the believer to continue in a life of sin? I mean, if God saves us, do whatever we want. And remember, top of the chapter says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it, right? May, May it never be. It's an impossibility. That's not what justification is about. Right? But because of our union with Christ, uh, again, as he laid out, Paul laid it out in chapter 5, our union with Christ actually guarantees our sanctification, our uh, continual separation from sin because we're united with him. And our old self has been crucified with Christ that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We've been set free, right? We're free to serve God, to serve Christ, no longer slaves of sin. So chapter 6 shows our union with Christ what it does, what it achieves in chapter 7 shows us what the law cannot do. The law cannot save us, right? So therefore, when the apostle says here in the, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, when he uses that word, therefore, it really doesn't fit in the context of chapters 6 and 7. So what happens is, therefore, in 8, 1, actually takes us all the way back to the beginning of chapter 5. So you might want to just look back there to remind yourself, because it's been a long time since we were in chapter 5, all right? Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 6, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, Much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having then been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So when Paul starts talking about, or at that point forward, Paul starts talking about even more about the grace of God through the person of Christ, that through one man's action, one man's sin, that being Adam, he brought condemnation to the entire human race. And then through one man's righteousness, one man's act of righteousness, that being the person of Jesus Christ, it resulted in justification of life to all men who believe. That's verses 12 through 19. Then he ends the chapter, verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. And then you have here Romans 8, 1. He says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? There's now, therefore, no condemnation in the context of chapter 5, because that's really where this is coming from. There's no condemnation for those who have been justified by faith, verse 1 of chapter 5. There's no condemnation for those who have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, chapter 5. There's no condemnation for those who have obtained their introduction by faith and who are standing in grace. There's no condemnation for those who exalt in the hope of the glory of God. There's no condemnation for those whom Christ died for. There's no condemnation to those whom God demonstrates his own love to us while we were yet sinners. There's no condemnation for those who have been now justified by Christ's blood. There's no condemnation for those who are saved from the wrath of God to come through Christ. There's no condemnation for those who were once enemies but now have been reconciled to God again through the death of his son. There's no condemnation for those who are under the reign of grace through the righteousness of Christ to eternal life. 
again to our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's what he's saying. That's where this introductory statement 8.1 fits in. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, again, he takes us back, not to 6, not to, not to 7, not to 6, all the way back at least to 5, and maybe not even just to chapter 5. He really takes us back to the main theme of the book of Romans, to the great doctrine. Do you remember what the great doctrine, what is the issue in the book of Romans? It is justification by faith, justification by faith and faith alone. So Romans 8.1 really is a restatement of that theme that Paul left off with in chapter 5. And it's really the theme that Paul has been working out from the beginning of the book. So Romans 8.1 really is a summary statement, if you will, of the argument that he began all the way back in chapter 1 when he stated Romans 1 verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith, right? The righteous man shall live by faith. That's the theme. That's the theme of the book. So in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul comes back to that theme and he keeps repeating it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are justified by faith, those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. He just keeps repeating this theme over again. He says, therefore, there is now, now in the present circumstance, after everything I've said up to this point in the letter, understand there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that really sets the context, if if you will, for Romans 8.1. It's a restatement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that's the great theme of Romans 8. Uh, contrary to what some good men say, I do not think that the great theme of Romans 8 is sanctification. I do think sanctification is part of it, but only part of it. I think the great theme of Romans 8 is justification by faith. And because of that justification by faith, the security of the believer, the security of the Christian, it's the doctrine played out of the final perseverance of the saints. The ultimate and complete final salvation for everyone who believes upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the theme of Romans 8. Again, from no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus to the end of the chapter, there is now no separation uh, from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the, uh, that's the overview if you want. So you can go back to chapter 8 and just kind of meander here with me like I'm going to meander. All right? And so that's, that's the, the context. What about the overview? If we were to do a quick overview of the chapter and kind of try to see it in one whole setting. So verse 1 is really the fundamental proposition of the chapter. And everything that flows from this point forward really is the working out of that proposition. Again, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what the apostle is going to do throughout the chapter is list six reasons why. Six reasons why our salvation is secure. Six reasons why salvation is secure for those who are in Christ Jesus. Six reasons for why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and our salvation is guaranteed. The first reason is found in, the first, uh, in verses 2 through 4, where Paul is going to prove that our eternal security in Christ, or prove our secure, eternal security in Christ by showing us that we have been delivered from the law and joined to Christ. Delivered from the law and joined to Christ by the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Then he's going to go on and talk about the fact that what the law could not do, God has done for us in Christ. Verse 3. 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? First reason, there's uh, eternal security, no condemnation, because we've been delivered from the law, joined to Christ by the person of the Holy Spirit. Second issue, our salvation is guaranteed. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. The work of the Holy Spirit within us starts in verse 5, goes through verse 13. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. But the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. So he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit comes, and he quickens our dead spirit. Right? He quickens our dead spirit. He awakens us to the reality of our sin and our condemnation before a holy God. And then he causes us to repent and to turn to God in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Then the Holy Spirit begins to work a work in our lives that frees us from the power of sin. And in that process, he starts the, that process of sanctification, right? Uh, verse 13, if the, if, uh, but if, uh, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I, I think that's going to turn out to be, this section is going to turn out to be perhaps the most important section as we study, uh, because, again, it's going to tell us that if we are justified, then we're going to be sanctified by the work of the person of the Holy Spirit, right? If we're truly at peace with God, if we're truly united to God through Christ, then it's by necessity that we have been changed from who we were apart from Christ. If we are justified, then we are regenerate. If we are justified, we're regenerate, then we are living in newness of life, and we are bearing fruit for God. But if you're not living in newness of life, if you're not bearing fruit for God, then you're not living according to the power of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not living in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, then you're not just an open quote, unfulfilled Christian, close quote. You're not just an open quote, defeated Christian, close quote. And you're certainly not a so-called open quote, carnal Christian, close quote, because there's no kind of category for that. If you're not living... A new life, if you're not bearing fruit for God by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you're simply not a Christian. That's the argument of that section. It's a profound section of Scripture, profound argument. He's saying again, our salvation is guaranteed by the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Verse 9 again, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If the Spirit of Christ is in you and you've really met Christ, you're going to look like him. You're going to be changed. Number three, 
Our salvation is guaranteed or there's no condemnation because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Because again, the Holy Spirit now dwells within every true believer. As that person has been now, has now become a child of God. Right? The Spirit dwells within us, the work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and now we've become children of God. That's verse 14 through 17. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Verse 15, if you have not received the Spirit, or for you have not received the Spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Again, it's not just that one who has faith in God has been removed from condemnation, that's true. It's not just that uh, that person has been merely forgiven, that's also true, but that's not enough. Right? What Paul is saying is for those who have been placed their faith in God and have been removed from the realm of condemnation, forgiven, they've actually been adopted into God's family. They've actually been adopted into God's family, and now they call God not just uh, the, the judge of the universe, but they actually call him Abba Father. And he calls us, who have repented and placed our faith in Christ, his children. Children of God, and not only that, verse 17, if children heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, that's a tremendous statement. People who die don't just leave their stuff to anybody, they leave it to their children. They don't just bless anybody, they bless those who, whom they love. And that's what he's saying. We have a relationship now with the judge of the universe. Now he's our father. He's the one who loves us and has given us all good things. It's a tremendous statement. So it's God in his grace who's not only saved us, but it's God in his grace in his mercy that has changed our nature. He's not only changed our nature, but he's changed our relationship with him. He's made us his sons, his children. Now, if God has made us, whom he has saved through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's made us his children, how in the world could our salvation possibly fail? And the answer is it can't. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The fourth reason, the fourth reason that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that our salvation is uh, guaranteed that our salvation is eternally secure is because as sons of God, listen, we're destined to glory. As sons of God, we're destined for glory. This is verse 18, verses 18 through 25. So in that section, Paul is going to encourage us not to look at us, not to look at our present circumstances, but to look to our future inheritance. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then Paul does something that is remarkable, and uh, what he does in the words of James Boyce is he lifts the matter of our redemption to a cosmic level, asserting that the restoration of fallen men and women through the work of Christ is only one part of what God is doing in salvation. But God is also redeeming nature also, which means that he is saving creation from the decay it experienced as a result of Adam's fall in Eden. That's a tremendous statement by James Boyce. Because listen, salvation is much more than us getting saved and going to heaven. That's part of it. But we're caught up in a grand scheme for the redemption of the universe. How do you know that? I read verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. If you lived on the West Coast, this is an easy one for you. The ground's not stable out there. I grew up on the West Coast. I, I've been in big, big earthqu- uh, earthquakes. <clears throat> I, I've, seen the, I've seen the ground go up and down like this. You're in this side, and then you're in that side, right? I've seen the ground do this thing, and I've said to myself, how in the world is this building that I'm in staying together because this is not normal? I have seen pools laying in the backyard of homes slop water over the side because the ground went like this, Okay? The whole creation groans. Where, where do earthquakes come from? Where do natural disasters come from? It's part of the curse that is in the world because of sin. So the whole cosmic redemption that God is a, that we're a part of, again, is not just our salvation. It's a, the redemption of the entire universe. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones offers this, and, and he just says it so well. He says, The radical defect in so many of us is that we are so subjective and always thinking of our particular moods and states. Is that not a true statement? The chief defect, the chief problem in so many of us is that we're so subjective. We actually think the universe revolves around us. We think all maps begin with us in the middle. We think all timelines begin. That before you were born, nothing in the world of any kind of significance ever happened because once you showed up, that's when things really started to matter. And it doesn't matter if you're young in the room or you're old in the room. That's the way we think. That's what the fall has done to our brain, made it not work properly. The radical defect in so many of us is that we are so subjective and always thinking of our particular moods and states. The Apostle Paul <coughs> excuse me, reminds us that sin not only affects us and our fellow human beings, it has affected the whole creation. The animals, even uh, immature, uh, inanimate nature, everything is affected. God's work, God's creation has been marred. Sin has, sin has come in and evil has polluted it all. We are to look to salvation and ourselves as part of the glorious scheme, which is to remo- renovate the entire cosmos, because God is going to do that. The whole cosmos, he's going to do that in you, right? God is working in our hearts and our lives. That's true. But God has a much bigger plan. It's the reconciliation, the recreation, right? The destruction of this present a fallen world and universe and the recreation of a new world, right? A, 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 new, a new universe, right? So that's part of the plan of redemption. Verse 23 says, not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Verse 24, for in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for he who hopes for or uh, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he's already seen verse 25 but we hope for what we do not see with perseverance we eagerly await for it right we're we're excited about the creation we're excited about the redemption of our bodies amen we're, we're looking for a new not just a new heavens and earth but we're looking for a new body right we want to change this old worn out one for a brand new one right so here's another reason why there's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus because as sons of God, we're headed for glory. We're part of this cosmic drama, if you will. We've been caught up into this. We're a part of it. And one day we're going to see the restoration of God's universe. 
The fifth reason why we as believers in Christ can be assured of our salvation and know that we'll never face condemnation is, again, because of the intercession of the Holy Spirit. This is verses 26 and 27. The intercession. We've had the work, the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now the intercession. So, again, the third person, the blessed third person of the Trinity, intercedes with the first person on our behalf, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So as Christians, we're not left in this world to ourselves. It is the Holy Spirit who acts as our intercessor. He's the one who encourages us to pray. He's the one who teaches us how to pray. He's the one who prays for us at times. Therefore, nothing can separate us from that love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Right When there's constant communication between the members of the Godhead concerning us, who God has redeemed through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be certain that there's no condemnation, that our salvation is secure. And there's constant interaction between the members of the Godhead. The intercession of the Holy Spirit. Number six, the sixth argument, why is there's no uh, condemnation, there's eternal security for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, why salvation is guaranteed and there's therefore now condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is found in the purposes of God and the character of God. The purposes of God and the character of God. And that starts at verse 28 and ends in verse 39 at the end of the chapter. Verse 28 through verse 39. Now, some commentators divide this portion up into two different parts. Two separate arguments, if you will. The first is found from verses 28 to 30 that speaks of the eternal decrees, the eternal decrees of God and the purposes of God. And then verses 31 to 39 that declare God's infinite, unchanging love, his infinite and unchanging love. Verses 29, excuse me, 29 and 30 contain what many call that golden chain or the unbreakable chain of God's saving work. Uh, the verses in that section stress the sovereignty of God of sal- in salvation, what God has done, what God will do. Again, salvation starting in the mind of God before the foundation of the world and is going to be finished uh, in the, the glory of eternity future. So God has an eternal plan of redemption. It's revealed. It's not a secret. It's revealed uh, that plan before the foundation of the world. He took certain steps. He made a plan. He formed that plan. He took actions in time uh, to carry out that plan. And again, all this was set in motion in eternity past. It's going to come to pass, is coming to pass in time, and in total will be fulfilled in eternity future. That's what this portion is about. So how can we be certain of our eternal salvation, the fact there's no condemnation, because of the nature and the character of God? God who has planned so great a salvation. God who has, again, declared his plans and his purposes to us as men. He has announced it. And if God has made an announcement, he's not going back on it. If he's made a promise, he's not going to turn back on that promise. That promise can't fail. God's plans are certain. And again, his great name is going to guarantee it. And during that section, we'll look at the great themes of foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, glorification, and so on in that section of Scripture. And then we'll see how God sovereignly works out all of these acts for our good and for his glory in the context of divine love, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
And then in verses 31 to 35, Paul asks five questions. Five questions. First, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Everything that he's just laid out. Right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And the, can't, the answer, of course, is no one, right? I mean, if God's for us, who's going to stand against us? Who's going to stand against the God of the universe? Our salvation is secure because of the character of God, the nature of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, the declaration of God. Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul is saying, look, if God has already given us the greater thing, that is the gift of his son to secure our salvation, how could he ever withhold the lesser things that is failing to keep our salvation secure and certain. If he's already delivered up his son for our salvation and given us the greater thing, the gift of his son, how could he ever withhold the lesser things like keeping our salvation secure and certain? Right? If God did not spare his own son but delivered him up, it is inconceivable that God who is immutable, God who is eternal, God is holy, righteous, and all-powerful, would offer up his son as a sacrifice and then allow something to mess the whole thing up. That's what he's saying. It's inconceivable that someone or something can frustrate or stop God's plans or purposes through Christ. Again, that whole idea is impossible because no one can stand against God. No one can thwart the hand of God, the purposes of God. No one stands in the way of God's eternal purposes and plans. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up or delivered him over for us all. Again, so it's the character of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God. God sending his son to be the lamb uh, who takes away the sin of the world, to be the sin bearer in order to save us. That guarantees our eternal security. Right? Salvation is certain. It's absolutely certain because of that act of God. Third question, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now, I guess somebody could try to stand up and bring an accusation. Someone could try to bring a charge. But most, uh, you know, the, the accuser of the brethren always does that. But he's saying, look, in essence, no one can ever bring a charge that's going to stand. Right? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? If God himself is elected, if God himself has justified that man, who's ever going to stand up and make a charge that's going to stick? That's what that question is in verse 33. No charge will ever stand against those whom God has chosen in Christ. Verse 34, the fourth question, who is the one who condemns? And again, the answer is no one. No one's going to condemn successfully God's elect. No one's going to condemn successfully those whom God justifies. For even Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Fifth question, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Oh, he says, look, you're going to have problems in a fallen world. Right? There's going to be issues, troubles. Verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Right? We're going to have problems in a fallen world. And though we have trouble, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword... These things certainly aren't going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Neither will, verse 38, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is eternal security. That's perseverance of the saints. That's the ultimate guarantee of our salvation 
And it's the ultimate guarantee of our salvation because of the greatness, the power, the might of God himself. No one's ever going to stop him. No one's going to thwart his plans. No one's going to stop his eternal purposes. Right? Because God has made a declaration of his infinite and his unchanging love. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is going to separate the true believer from Christ. From that love that was so great that God sent his son the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, that God gave his Son. John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. That's the same as saying there's no condemnation. He's not judged. So how do we know our salvation is secure? How do we know there's no condemnation? How do we know that salvation is guaranteed? How do we know, again, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because we have been delivered from the law. We've been delivered from the law and joined to Christ, number two, because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. The work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Number three, the fact that we become children of God. Number four, as the sons of God, we're destined for glory. Number five, because, again, of the intercession of the Holy Spirit. And again, six, and perhaps the greatest, final, most grand argument, eternal security for those who are in Christ Jesus because of the purposes and the nature of God himself. What he has declared is going to happen. His infinite, unchanging love will make sure that that happens. Now, one more thing before we kind of move on here again. Uh, the, The great theme of the chapter is justification by faith. And while that's the great theme, the chapter also says you can't just stop at justification. Right? You can't, and we've talked about this a lot, you can't separate justification and sanctification. They go together. Another way to say that in the common vernacular is you just can't take Jesus Christ as your Savior and not your Lord. Right? You just can't take Jesus as your Savior and then somewhere down the future when you decide, take up your sanctification and make him Lord of your life. It doesn't work that way because Jesus Christ is Lord. God made him that. Jesus Christ is the Savior. And just as God has provided justification for those here in Christ Jesus, sanctification is one of those steps on the way to glorification. Sanctification is one of the steps on the way to promise glorification. If you just stop at justification <coughs> excuse me, and reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you have denied the central theme, not only the chapter, but the entire book. How do you know that? Verse 29. Don't miss verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become, what's the next word? Conformed. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the process of sanctification. That's not just the process, that's the guarantee. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Uh, Again, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? So what you have is you cannot separate justification and sanctification. Sanctification is part of the process to glorification. And we are all in time being conformed, shaped, molded to be looking like the son of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the sanctification process. That's what he's saying. And if you reject that, if you separate justification and sanctification, you've overturned the whole, uh, the whole theme of the book. So that set the context. And that's 
giving us an overview. Are you okay? You're still breathing out there? All right? Just wanted to give you a flyover. Now, in just a few moments, let's just take a brief look at the text. Just start to dive into it. Romans 8 and 1. Perhaps the most important verse in the entire Bible. I mean, certainly the most wonderful good news that anybody could ever hear. It's the heart, the soul of the gospel message. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So again, the beginning, that word therefore draws everything forward. Right? Paul's pulling the entire Romans book of Romans forward to this point. Uh, the, the theme of the book, justification by faith alone, right? That the believer has a righteousness of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ given to him. And the most important word in that sentence is the word no, N-O. There is now no condemnation. He's saying the possibility has been removed. It'll never happen. So again, that one little word no establishes the eternal security of salvation. And in the Greek text, the word no is actually the first word in the sentence. That means it's the primary emphasis. The translators have moved it, the word order in the English to make it easier for us to understand, but it's really a strong declaration of the claim there's absolutely no condemnation. The word no is an emphatic negative adverb of time, if you want. It carries the idea of complete cessation. The Christian will never know condemnation. He's saying it's utterly impossible. The word condemnation is a strong word in the Greek. It means the death sentence or the damnatory sentence, the damnatory sentence. The word condemnation only appears here and in chapter 5, 16, and 18 in the book of Romans. And again, the word has to do with sentencing for a crime. It primarily relates to the penalty that the verdict demands. And Paul has already said in the book that the penalty for sin is what? Death. Eternal death, eternal punishment. But for the believer, there is no eternal death sentence hanging over the head of the believer. And Paul actually uses a double negative, which makes it a positive. It makes Double negative makes it more emphatic, and the double negative actually makes it positive, if I remember my math skills correctly. When he says no condemnation, he actually means that there's justification. There's a positive justification. That's another way of saying it. Another way of saying you're saved in Christ, justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Paul is teaching this wonderful, great good news that those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone will never face sentencing. They'll never face punishment for their sin. Any sin. Those sins that they did commit, those sins that they are committing, those sins that they will commit in the future. Those who come along and teach that you can lose your salvation, those who teach that a man is forgiven, but then if he sins, he goes back once more into condemnation until he confesses that sin and forgives and receives forgiveness all over again, don't understand what the Bible's teaching on this issue. They're not teaching the truth, they're teaching falsehood. Because a true Christian can never be condemned again. Why? There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So positionally, <clears throat> before God, a forgiven sinner, one who again by faith alone through, in Christ alone believes what God has done on his behalf, stands forever justified, declared not guilty, positively righteous by the judge of the universe. Because of God's acceptance of the perfect sacrifice, the perfect person, the Lord Jesus Christ, not on the basis of anything that the sinner we have done or have not done. It's not about us keeping the law or keeping the Sabbath. It has nothing to do with it. it. 
has to do with what God has done through Christ. We are too subjective. We need to understand objective reality, objective truth. For those who are justified by God, there is no condemnation. So again, the Christian, all of his sins, all of his sins, past, present, future, have been dealt with by God in Christ. I mean, I'm telling you what, that's monumental truth. That stand up and shout hallelujah. My, my sins have been nailed to the cross and he remembers it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, right? I mean, that's shouting up and down stuff. Glorious truth. All your sins, past, present, and future, forgiven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever sin you have done has already been dealt with through Christ. Whatever sin you're a part of now has already been cared for by Christ. Whatever sin you'll commit this day, tomorrow, the next day, has already been paid for and forgiven in Christ. I mean, it's wonderful truth. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, not even us. Not even you. Can't do it. You're not strong enough. There's no condemnation, and nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Again, it's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that states that the elect are not only redeemed by Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit, they are kept in faith by the mighty power of God. All those who are spiritually united to Christ through regeneration are eternally secure in him, and nothing can separate them from the eternal, unchangeable love of God. For we have been predestined unto eternal glory and therefore are assured of heaven. That's a tremendous truth. Now, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not teach that all who profess Christ or all who say that they are Christians are certain of heaven. How do you know that? Again, I read the Bible, Matthew chapter 7. There's a whole lot of people that said, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these wonderful things on your behalf? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Right? The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says that only those saints who are elect by God, who've been set apart by the Holy Spirit, who have been given a true, genuine, fruit-producing, life-changing faith, only they persevere to the end, right? Only they are secure and safe. Again, a person may come and profess faith in Christ and live an unchanged, unregenerated life, and they give testimony to the lack of the genuineness of their faith and their profession. And when you see these kinds of people, and unfortunately you see it all the time in Christendom, you see people who've, quote-unquote, fallen from grace. That's not true. They've not fallen from grace because a true believer can never fall from grace. What is true when you see these people, and there have been some pretty high-profile ones lately who have made certain professions of faith, have had certain lifelong ministries, but their lives have been lived as absolute reprobates. And when they've been exposed <clears throat> after their death, people don't know how to deal with them. And a guy like me comes up and says, well, all I can do is examine their life in light of the Scripture. When you see their life, that they live as absolute reprobates, yet they claim the, the name of Christ, the fact is that they've never truly been saved to begin with. Again, those who commit grievous sins without godly sorrow under repentance prove their profession was a lie. Because nothing can separate the true believer from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not only there's no condemnation, there's absolute positive confirmation, right? You're being conformed, conformation, right? You're being shaped in the image of Christ. That's part of the process. Now, Paul goes on and says, whom there is no, for whom there's no condemnation. Look at the text. It says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? To be in Christ Jesus means that we're vitally connected to Christ. 
just like branches on, on a vine, right? They grow. They, they get their nourishment from the root, right? You can't just take your grape bush or whatever and cut off all the all the strings and lay it, lay it on the ground. It has to be united to the root. That's what he's saying. There's a vital connection. The branches need that vital life-giving flow from the vine. So we who are united to Christ, we're in a vital life-giving relationship. To be in Christ means that what is true of Christ is true of us. Because we're now in Christ. We used to be in Adam. What was true of Adam used to be true of us. But no longer, we're in Christ. We know that when Adam sinned, we sinned. When, 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 uh, when uh, Christ died, we died with him. We who are in Christ. Right? When, when Christ rose from the dead, we rose with him, fully justified. Christ ascended to heaven. We have ascended to Christ, to the right hand of the Father with him, positionally in the mind of the Father. Ephesians chapter 2, right? We are already presently seated in the heavenly places this very moment. You go, well, I don't, I don't. That's where you're at. The problem is we keep looking at the, the temporal in front of us and not believing objective truth. And because we don't believe objective truth, we struggle. We need to believe what God says to be true. Have I not preached a sermon on there's a difference between believing God and believing, or believing in God and believing what God says? That's part of the process. We've got to take our mind out, scrub it, get it renewed, and start listening to what God says. I'm pretty convinced that God knows how to speak and words mean something. I'm pretty sure that he can communicate to us, that he wants to communicate to us. And so we have to take the things that he's communicated to us and rejoice not just go, that doesn't make any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Right? Just What does it say? It's tremendous truth. In Christ means that we have been given a new nature. We've been forgiven, and not only that, but changed forever, transformed. I don't know how many hundreds of times I've used this. Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. All things pass away, and behold, all things new have come. That's good news. Why would I want to hang on to that dead corpse of who I used to be in Adam? Right? We who are in Christ have been justified by God, forgiven, forever released from that former life, from that former bondage of sin, from the penalty of death, and made fit to stand in the presence of the sinless one for all eternity. And how in the world could there be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And again, the answer is there can't be. There isn't. Therefore, there is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. First Corinthians one thirty, Paul says this, By his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. No, I thought I was saved. I thought I was in Christ because of something I did. I remember I raised my hand, I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, I got baptized, I signed a card. Good, I'm glad you did all those wonderful things. But that's not truth. That's subjective truth. Here's objective truth. You had nothing to do with them. You Calvinists. Yeah, whatever. By God's doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Don't think so highly of yourself that you can figure it out. Don't think so highly of yourself that you who are dead in trespasses and sins can figure it out and save yourself and come from death to life and you choose Jesus. That's ridiculous. I know you've got to respond in time. By his doing. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven, You are now Christ's body and individually members of it. So to be in Christ means that we are there by God's work, by God's doing. We are members of his body. We are now part of him, part of Christ, united to Christ, receiving our life from Christ. And since we're so vitally and intimately connected to Christ by God the Father himself, nothing can ever separate us from him. 
Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's why there's no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you starting to get the theme? I mean, again, how foolish it is to teach or believe that at one moment you can be in Christ and then you do something and make yourself out of Christ. But then you repent, you seek forgiveness of sin, and now you're back in Christ. It's schizophrenia on a spiritual level. By God's doing, we are in Christ. We are now members of Christ's body by what God has done. That kind of schizophrenic on a spiritual level is an impossibility. If you're in Christ, listen, if you're in Christ, you are in Christ forever. And no one or no thing, nothing, can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. Those who are in Christ are more than just forgiven. Again, they're united to the person of Christ. And because of that, you being united to the person of Christ, there's absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And when you sin, and you will, as we saw in Romans, you don't cease to be a Christian. You don't come under eternal condemnation. When you sin... As a Christian, when, when you are in Christ and you sin, you're not sinning against the law. You're actually sinning against love. You're sinning against the love of God who has set you free from that body of death in Adam, who has now united you to his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you sin, you're not sinning against the law. You're sinning against love, the God who's changed you. One last thing. And there's only one place that you can find there's no condemnation. That's in Christ Jesus. I think I've told you this before a number of times. There's only two places that persons born in this world can be. A man is either in Christ or is in Adam. There's only two classes of individuals. Those who are in Christ and those, therefore, who are not under condemnation or those who are not found in Christ and those who are still under condemnation. For those who are not found in Christ, the Bible says you're still enemies of God, you're still under his wrath, and you will face the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which consumes the adversaries. You will most certainly face the righteous God in judgment. But not so, listen, not so for the one who's found in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? Isn't that a glorious, wonderful truth? And the only way that a man or a woman can be removed from the condemnation to no condemnation is by repentance of sin and faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we stand before God under no condemnation because of what God has done and what Christ has done on our behalf. Amen? Amen. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this wonderful truth, this glorious truth. So thankful for an opportunity to just take a quick overview of Romans 8, and we look forward to our study in the future to have a greater understanding, a fuller understanding of the fact that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We praise you and honor you and love you as our God. In Christ's name, amen.